Welcome to the 19-Minute Marketing Podcast, where you get actionable advice on how to grow your business in less than 19 minutes. And now your host, Sebastian Hammer. Welcome to the show. I'm really happy to have you here. Likewise. Thank you. So market expansion, you have a lot of cultural barriers, a lot of language barriers. How do you get started with this? So I think that that's where the enormous power of the internet is underestimated and comes in. You know, it used to be for an American company, for a company anywhere, if they wanted to begin to export, what they had to do was to do a bunch of hypothetical research. They had to pick a target market. They had to say, okay, based on the size of the market or the population or the revenue flows or the trade flows or something, we think this is the place we want to be. We're going to start dumping money into it and hope we're right. And, you know, for three or five years, they'd send people back and forth. They'd hire people there. They'd invest money in the market. They'd register and have local tax filings and regulatory filings. And they'd be having their, their executives distracted and traveling back and forth. And at the end of that time, they'd say, well, is it working or not? And, and they hoped that it was. In many cases, there were sunk costs. And they had to decide, well, do we keep at it? Do we think it will work eventually? Will we start to make money? Or do we just give up? And American companies tend to be impatient. We tend to think in terms of quarterly results. And so after three years of working on something without a lot of success, many companies just said, hey, you know what? Exporting isn't for us and we're not going to do it. What's different now, though, is that if you do your digital marketing really well, doing what you need to do for your domestic market, the international buyers are going to find you. And when they do, not only can you begin to export just by managing the transactional issues, for instance, um, the payment and the logistics and shipping and that sort of thing, but you also begin to build data. So now you're no longer making this hypothetical or speculative decision. We think just because there's a billion people in such and such a market, that's where we want to go. Now you're doing it based on where you're getting actual traffic, actual inquiries, actual projects, actual sales. And so now you can begin to incrementally localize your marketing for those markets where you know you're having success. You start to build a base of international success. And then if you want to begin to experiment in other markets, that's wonderful. But it's, it's, it's so much easier now to get going profitably and safely and exporting than it used to be. Okay. So you said if you do your digital marketing really well, international clients will come. But how do you do your uh, digital marketing really well for international market to find you? Well, see, th that's, I think, an interesting thing. My experience is that you don't have to worry about the international market finding you initially. If you do it really well, you know, but in general, people want to make more, faster, higher quality, less expensively. So there's a series of business issues that are common, regardless of what country people happen to be in or where they're coming from. And so... If you address those issues, those customer pain points really effectively in digital marketing in the US, what I found is that buyers, not only from other Commonwealth or English speaking countries, but even from countries where language is traditionally a barrier, Brazil, for instance, where if you go and try to do business in person, you better be able to speak Portuguese online. I see a lot of American companies generating great Brazilian leads. So I think that to start, you don't need to worry about it. And then once you identify markets where you've got opportunity, there's a lot of incremental steps that we can talk about later that you can take that are low risk and low price. So when you have your digital marketing up, you're beginning to get some international traffic. Now, what data should you look on? What metrics should you look into to kind of say, okay, this is the market we should probably invest a little more in? So certainly traffic's one place to look, although there are certain markets in the world that tend to generate a lot of traffic. 
and a lot of inquiries without a lot of projects and certainly without a lot of successful sales. So you start kind of like a typical marketing analysis, start with traffic, look at inquiries or leads, look at new contacts, then start to look at where you actually are getting projects in your sales pipeline. And then certainly places where you're able to sell the deals and, and then consider the transactional complications is the, um, you know, are the logistics simple or really complicated to get it there? Does it get hung up in customs and sit there for three weeks because of corruption or does it pass through properly the way, you know, the way we'd like it to? And so you can then begin to refine based on those sorts of criteria. What about competition in the market? Is that something you look at or do you just go with the sales you get? So I think competition is always an important consideration, and particularly, I think, from a price perspective um, and particularly in emerging markets. On the other hand, if you have a track record, if you're generating inquiries, if you're generating sales, then that answers the competitive question. I mean, it may... Um, there's certainly some analysis to do around market share and how potentially big your market there could be. But if you're successfully selling without a strong local presence, just kind of doing it casually and remotely, then clearly you're competitive. And and so, you know, that answers much of that question for you. So you help B2B clients, as we've talked about, uh, and you have helped in, in a variety of different regions. Are there some common mistakes you see them when they just get into your business and say, Ed, can you help us with this? Yeah, so, and and the interesting thing is I got into this originally when I was partners with a German company and we were importing German capital equipment into the U.S. And so one of the things in, in the U.S., I'm very emphatic that we need strong personas to describe the people we're selling this equipment to. And, and the interesting thing about this German equipment was that we could have been selling the same machine to a... Um, a lady who has a small business at home who's doing greeting cards and is phenomenally successful and now selling tons of them and, and can't count them all out at night as she's watching TV. We could be selling the same machine to her as to a 25-year-old pharmaceutical engineer that's got a stack of regulations on his desk from the USDA that's, you know, six inches thick. So it was a very different description about a very different discussion about the same machine. So I've seen the Germans struggle in the US in many cases, including that personal experience I had, where they have a very technical, you know, A4 size sheet of paper that lists all the technical specs and, and essentially tells us somebody, you figure out how it helps your business. And I've seen American companies by the same token, take their sales information, which tends to very much focus on labor savings, and turn around and translate it into Spanish and take it to a trade show in Mexico, and have very little success, because labor cost is not you know, people are aware of it, but that's not a primary driving factor in that market. So assuming that you'll sell using the same um, arguments and value in other markets that you use in your own, I think is the biggest mistake the companies tend to make. Each market is different. There's a different business culture, different business drivers, different people make the decisions. You know, in the U.S., you can have a uh, young engineer that comes up with ideas and brings them to a staff meeting and in other cultures it's going to be the managing director who says this is where we're going to go somebody research it and bring me back the answer two very different situations that would be looking for solutions in different ways with different kinds of descriptions all aside from the language that's just based on the culture okay so so how do you go about avoiding these not without spending too much money on analysis and trying to figure out uh, who should we sell to and still avoid the problem of putting everyone in one box. So I think, again, you let the market tell you. 
as you start to have success, let's say you use the example of Poland, you're having success getting good leads, getting some deals done, selling machines in Poland, getting some resale. You've got some distributor interest. So you talk to the to the people who are buying. Hey, you know, we're thrilled. We're very grateful for the business. We look forward to coming and meeting you someday and seeing your facility and seeing how you use it. But in the meantime, do you mind spending 10 minutes with me and explain to me, you know, how do you make this kind of decision and who in your company is involved and go through the very traditional process of building a persona, but you build the Polish persona for whatever market it is that you're selling into there. Ask them the same kind of questions that you'd ask anywhere else and understand, you know, how they consider price, how they consider lead time, how they consider the various um, solutions that you provide, how it fits into their matrix. That's the easy way. I mean, those are people who you know, who um, you've either have bought from you or looked at you and didn't buy from you. And it's completely free to have those discussions and uh, to build that awareness. You just mentioned uh, translating. Uh, I know that's a huge cost for many businesses, if, especially if you have like a SaaS platform and you have to translate everything to every market you go into. Uh, how much adaption should you make to your product and your website and your digital marketing when you expand to another country? So again, let's let's make sure we get the order um, clarified. People say, and I, I don't know if anyone actually knows the statistics, but I've heard that there are more internet-connected mobile devices in the world than there are toothbrushes. So if that's even remotely correct, that means that there are people speaking however many thousands of languages are in the world that are searching for things and potentially finding you. So you can't address every language. You can't address every situation. What you can do is start to figure out where those people are finding you, where you're having sales discussions, where you're selling deals. From that, then you build that persona awareness, like that conversation with the with the Polish buyer that bought your stuff. You say, you know what? We believe that there's a substantial opportunity in Poland. And so based on this and based on this persona insight, we're going to do a little bit of localization. Maybe we'll use a few local language keywords. Now, here's where translation will get you in trouble. If you... Um, there's so many business situations that one can imagine where the terms of art in different languages are not direct translations. They're, they're completely different terms. So you can't just say, um, you know, what's the least expensive way to do such and such and, and put that in Polish words. You have to understand how the Polish buyer searches for that. So that's where your Polish keywords will come from. Begin to use some of those. Then maybe you have a good translation of a landing page, not your whole site, but a landing page. Maybe you have um, a few significant blog posts to get a lot of traffic, and maybe you get those translated. Maybe you do a translation of a press release announcing one of your offers. Eventually, you might um, set up a microsite, call it a Polish site, 10 pages, maybe with, with the appropriate top-level domain. And then, as an even further nuance, host it in an IP range that matches that top level domain. So not with GoDaddy in the US, but with a host that's in Poland so that the DNS matches the top level domain. That can be a great, I mean, that's a, that's an example of kind of a series of incremental tweaks that you can make, all of which honestly, 
could be made from an office in the U.S. or in any other country um, with very little risk and relatively little expense. It's not like taking a thousand page B2B website and saying we need the whole thing in seven languages immediately and, you know, a huge project over the course of the next six months translating it. It's a very incremental process which helps to manage risk and manage expense. Is, is that a mistake you see other companies do also that they get a little traction in country and then you just say, let's spend all out on this. This is the new market. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. How, how do you know when to take the next step? Is that something you do on an experimentation basis where you say, okay, we had a little more traction, let's try this. And then, or how do you go about? <laughs> um, a perfect example is to go to a trade show or, or every country, you know, the U.S. and other countries have their programs of um, export assistance that can help you meet buyers and set up meetings in a market. So do one of those. Go and, and spend a week, you know, combine vacation and some work, meet some buyers, have some discussions, learn about the market, get a sense of the culture, decide if it's a place you'll be comfortable because you're going to have to travel there if, if, if you're beginning to do more of this. And if you are, if you think that the digital data, your success to that point and your comfort level all say yes, this is a place worth experimenting, then you then you build a plan to transition from the simple digital marketing into an on-the-ground presence. And, and typically the best way to do that is first with trade shows and then with export assistance programs and then with some sales channel and then potentially with um, maybe hiring a country manager that manages the sales channel, then maybe a representative office, and then eventually, if it makes sense, a subsidiary. One of the mistakes that many companies make is they tend to say, okay, well, we've got to open an office and we're going to staff it with people. And, you know, if you're a billion dollar company, you can afford to do some of that. If you're a $50 million company, that's a, that's an expensive commitment and it leads to a distraction and, 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 uh, you know, lots of questions about how to allocate resources and other things. So it's, it's much easier to, to move gradually in that way as well. And, one of the things that also helps to keep in mind is that as soon as you have a nexus, in other words, as soon as you're identified as having a physical business connection in a country, and that's defined differently in different countries, but often that carries with it then requirements for filings, regulatory tax filings, payroll filings, all kinds of other stuff, which can be quite complex and quite time consuming and quite expensive. So another thing to keep in mind is there are often opportunities that you can, um, uh, what we call lease employees. So there are companies that say, okay, we have a location in Poland. We will hire a worker in Poland and they'll just answer you full time. So you don't have a presence here. You don't have an employee here, but you have a full time person working on your behalf. And that can be an easy way to begin to get a good local native presence in a market without immediately having responsibility for all of the filings and that sort of thing. And in some markets, that may be good for the next 10 years. In some markets, that may be a six-month step as an incremental lead-in to what you're going to do next. And in some markets, maybe you'll just sell by e-commerce. Maybe you won't have any on-the-ground presence. Um, and and uh, you know, another thing companies often fail to account for is that you can have multiple sales channels. So you could have, maybe you sell B2C via e-commerce or retail stores. Maybe you sell B2B through your own employees or through a distribution channel. And you could, and, and in some cases there are B2G sales as well, which 
could often be through direct sales. So you can have different channels in a given market in order to address different, uh, you know, different market requirements as well. Okay. You've uh, worked in India too and in, langu- uh, in countries with other languages than English. And often a company starts in their native language, but that also means it's more difficult to get international leads because people won't recognize the language and you have no search words in the beginning. Or do you need to start in English or Spanish to get international? Yeah, so I can I can answer that question two different ways. Um, first, my general experience is that English is a fairly common business language. And I mean, I use the example of the Brazilian market where I know when I go there in person, I don't speak Portuguese and I need to have a native Portuguese, Brazilian Portuguese speaker there with me in order to do any sort of person to person business. But I've seen lots of leads generated online in English from Brazil. So there's a difference in how people, you know, the comfort level in conversation versus if you can take your time and download something and read it, um, there's often a, a, a difference. I'll give you another example. I have a an American client that's a subsidiary of a German company. And within about three months of having launched a new digital program for them here in the U.S., we were actually harvesting more international leads for the German parent than the German parent does who've had their digital footprint for 20 years. So if you build it really well and really sensibly, build it, meaning your digital marketing, for the business issues, then my experience is business people with those issues from around the world will find you regardless of language. There are exceptions. I mean, they, in, in some markets, the, the German market, for instance, tends to have enough um, local supply um, that works in local language that they may not spend a ton of time searching in English because if they search in German on, um, on you know, google.de among German vendors, they'll find what they need. But in many markets around the world, English will will get you found. Cool. Um, so if people want to find out more about you and what you do and what you do at uh, Concilium, how do they contact you and how do they find you? So the easiest way, if they go to manufacturingrevenuegrowth.com, they'll find me manufacturingrevenuegrowth.com or my website is conciliumglobalbusinessadvisors.com or they can find me on LinkedIn or uh, you know, they search Ed Marsh and international sales and marketing on the internet. I hopefully I'll pop up. I think I do. Cool. Well, thank you so much for having you uh, for being on the show again. It was really awesome talking to you. Uh, I'm looking very much forward to see you in Boston. Well, I look forward to it as well. And thanks so much for the invitation and and your hospitality today, Sebastian. Thanks for listening to the 19 Minute Marketing Podcast at www.19minutemarketing.com.